So, here we go. Gospel and politics for the next two weeks. So, I hope this is helpful. Um, I know that anytime anybody talks about anything political in the world right now, it just kind of blows up and everybody gets angry. Um, so, it feels like a little bit of a risk to me to talk to you guys about it, but I also think it's important that we think about this biblically and theologically in light of the situation around us. And so, this is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. Normally, we go straight through a book of the Bible, or we take a passage, and we look at um, what it means and how we can apply it to our lives. Um, but for the next two weeks, we're obviously going to be a little bit more topical, trying to understand how the gospel and politics fit together, and how the gospel in Jesus Christ informs how we live and interact with others. And before we get started... The best description for this is essentially a disclaimer. Um, so I have some things that I feel like I just need to say to you at the beginning um, before we start talking about this. So first is, I am not an expert in political things or political thinking. Um, I've recently become more interested in this and have read a lot in the last couple of months um, to try to understand. So please be gracious as you listen to these. Um, the goal of this is to help us have conversations with people that disagree with us or see things differently than us, and to be able to act with grace and understanding to them. Um, so consider listening to these sermons kind of as practice for those conversations. Um, if you feel yourself getting angry about something that I say, it's a way to just say, oh, I might just need to calm down and think about why I'm so angry about this. And we'll get to some of that next week. So just know this could be like practice for an actual conversation with somebody else who you disagree with. Um, the other thing is, there's on that note, there's a very good chance that I'm going to say something that you're going to disagree with in the next couple of weeks, um, no matter where you fall politically. Um, and so I think that's okay. I think it's actually even good for us because if you come to church here and I don't ever say anything in a sermon that you disagree with or that challenges you or makes you think differently, then I feel like I'm not a very good pastor because if I just tell you what you already know and what you already want to hear, then I'm not actually leading you pastorally. And so I think this is definitely going to fall into that as well. I also want to say... I'm not intentionally trying to challenge either side or single out people or even technically issues. So if you feel like I've done that, that was not my intention. I'm trying to be as balanced as I can in what I'm sharing um, and what we're talking about. Um, again, I've said this before, but I just want to repeat it. This sermon is for you to listen to. This is not a sermon for your friend or your coworker, or whoever your family member to listen to, you might share it with them in a nice way, but I really want you guys to listen yourselves and think, what do I need to think about differently, or how might I need to change how I think? I also think this topic is important in light of our current situation. Um, yes, in our political situation where everything seems to be anger and attacks all the time, and where friends and family are being divided, and it's hard to know how to navigate that. But if, if you're visiting this morning, you're kind of listening in to this next couple of sentences. I think this is also important for us as a church, because from what I understand from talking to most of you, this church is mostly made up of conservative people, which is totally fine. But if we are here in this neighborhood to reach the people of this neighborhood, 
the people that are going to visit our church, that are going to come and check us out, are going to think very differently politically. And I think you guys know that this neighborhood is not full of conservatives, and I think that's also okay. But as a church, we need to be able to receive them and love them and listen to them and understand them because that's what God has called us to do by putting us in this neighborhood at this time. So I think this is very crucial for us as a church. This is also not to tell you how to vote. This is not to change your vote. Whether you vote both based on the character of the candidates, or whether you vote on policy, or you vote based on platform, or you give a single issue more weight than others, or you treat all issues equally, or you just throw darts at a dartboard. However you want to vote, that's totally fine, and I think there is room for that in what we're talking about. Right? But this is to, and it's also okay if somebody votes differently than you do, and they have a different philosophy on voting. Um, the dartboard one sounds pretty appealing to me at this point, but we'll see how it goes. Um, but this is to help us think through and have biblically grounded conversations about theology, politics, and the gospel. Because most of us have been told for our whole lives there's two things that you don't talk about. Religion and politics. And for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about both of them together. Um, and so we are not good at this because we've been told for our whole lives not to talk about it. And so this is going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. It's going to be challenging um, for me and for all of us. Um, I do want to say, just kind of to hold these up, the two books that I have read, um, one is by Jonathan Lehman. It's called How the Nations Rage. Um, a lot of what you are going to hear is going to come from this book. He's a great thinker on this issue. Um, he's sort of a pastor, but I think his PhD is actually in like political science. Um, and so he's thought about these things very well. So that's one. Um, the other one is him and a guy named Andy Nacelli um, wrote a little bitty book like this that's about how can I love church members with different politics. Um, I don't have them this week, but next week I will have about 10 of these that I'm just giving away. So if you want one of these, I'll, you can just take one next week. So I'll have those for you. But those are a couple of places to start. I know there's other good things that you can read, but I just want to share those with you um, as we get started. So <clears throat> here we go. You guys ready for this? All right. I did, we did also make you a bigger bulletin today so that you have more room for notes if you didn't notice. So you got two pages for notes instead of just one, just to make sure. There's also six points, um, more than we usually have also. That doesn't mean the sermon, well, I hope that doesn't mean the sermon is going to be twice as long as it usually is. So here we go. The first one is we are united by the gospel. So just so you know, today we're kind of setting the foundation for all of these principles, and then next week we're going to get very practical and talk about how we actually live and relate to each other in, in light of what we learned today. So first, as believers in Christ, there's one thing that brings us together, that's Christ. And we've talked about this before. Without Jesus, the people that are in this room right now, or even the people that are watching online, we would not be together. We would not. This group is, we have... 90-something-year-olds, we have one-year-olds, we have people who are born in this country, we have people that were born in other countries, we have people all over the place who have moved a ton of times, right? We have highly educated people, we have people with little education. There's nothing outside of Christ that brings this particular group of people together, and that's how it's supposed to be. 
The gospel unites us. It brings us together. It takes the beautiful diversity of humanity and it brings it together into one family with one heavenly father and one mission to love God and to love other people. And so we are all united in Christ, all nations, ages, political affiliations. In Christ, we are all made new, meaning we have a new family with new allegiances. We see this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4. It says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Meaning we have all received the same call, to follow Christ. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Right, That's how we treat each other, with humility, gentleness, patience, and love making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We make every effort to have unity. We fight, we struggle, we forgive, we, do, we let go of important things, all for the sake of unity, for us to be united in Christ. And why? We see that in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. There is one thing that brings us together, that saves us, that renews us, that changes our perspective on life, and that changes how we see and interact with the world. And it's that we were called by God and given the gift of faith to believe that we were sinners in need of a Savior. And that God sent Jesus Christ, his son, to earth to die for our sins on the cross so that we could be freed from the power and the penalty of sin. And not only that, but understanding the gospel also severs the hold that the world has on us. And so worldly things become less important when we understand the gospel and how important it is and that it unites us in Christ. And so if we understand that, the next thing that we need to understand is don't add to the gospel. It's not the gospel plus something else that makes us Christians. It's not the gospel plus being a Republican. It's not the gospel plus being a Democrat. It's not the gospel plus being a Libertarian. It's not even the gospel plus being Baptist that makes us believers in Christ. It's just the gospel by itself. If we add anything else to it, then we're wrong. It's only the gospel of Christ. And on the surface, we may say, of course that's true. I would never, it's only faith in Christ that makes us Christians and puts us in the right standing with God. But I think that adding things in is much sneakier than we think it is. It's easier to add in things that we think all Christians should do. And we lose sight sometimes of whether those things are biblical or not. But when we understand that we're saved by faith through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it changes how we view everything else. And there's a couple of ways to look at this, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples just to kind of help you think through this. If we were to take a survey of the church and discover that everyone is a fly fisherman, or that everyone drives an F-250, or everybody is a Cowboys fan, it's possible that this group is organized around those things and not just the gospel. 
right? I go to this church because everybody in that church is a Cowboys fan. Or I go to that church because everybody in the church is a fly fisherman. And so you may say that seems like a silly example. We wouldn't expect everybody to drive the same truck or be the same fan of the same team or anything like that. And I agree, but I think that also applies to things like politics. We shouldn't expect everybody to have the same viewpoint on everything either. And so if we look around at the people in our church and say, everybody in our church agrees politically on how to vote and what to do on the issues, you might ask, where did that come from? And it's possible that we could all have the same opinion and we could all be biblically informed, but we also need to ask, is there something besides the gospel that we are putting on people who come into this building to add to the gospel to say, you must be a Christian plus this viewpoint, or you must be a Christian plus this? Maybe not even intentionally, but even subconsciously, I think sometimes we do some of these things, not just in this area, but in others. So there should be unity in Christ and diversity of views in opinions in a room full of believers with different backgrounds, different experiences, different traditions, and all of those things. Secondly, our affiliations become a part of our identity. Right? I am in this group. I'm a Longhorn fan. I'm a UTEP fan. Sorry if you're a UTEP fan because the halftime score was bad enough. Um, right? But we feel like we need them sometimes to be liked or to have friends or to get what we want or to have a good reputation. Right? Whether it's stamp collecting or sports teams or political affiliations. But what happens is when God justifies us and gives us a new heart, we don't stop belonging to those groups, but we no longer need them to feel justified, which means we don't need them to make us feel worthy or good or even better than other people. And in addition to that, I don't ever need to bend over backward to keep the rules or to agree with everybody in any of the other groups I'm in to prove to everybody that I'm really one of them. If I was a Longhorn fan and I thought Tom Herman was doing a terrible job, it would give me the freedom to say he should be fired, even though nobody else would agree with me, especially not after yesterday, right? Because that group is not super important compared to being united in Christ. And so our other affiliations become less important and we hold them much more loosely when we truly understand the gospel because it changes how we relate to our other groups. This concept is made even more clear by Jesus in Luke chapter 14. He's kind of traveling around, and sometimes the Pharisees ask him, ask him questions, and so this is in the midst of that. This is Luke 14, verse 25. It says, Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So what is he saying here? Is he saying that we should hate our families? It doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. But what he's really trying to get at is, compared to loving and following Jesus, it should look like I hate everything else. Because he's more important more valuable, more precious than anything else in my life. 
no matter what it is, even family, which I think most of us would argue is the most important thing in our lives, after following Jesus, obviously, right? So if that is true with family, how much more true for political ideas and opinions? It should look like we hate them compared to loving Jesus. Which leads us to our next point, to keep things in the proper perspective. Sometimes it's easy to feel like whatever we're going through or we're experiencing is the biggest problem we've ever had. And in the midst of a global pandemic and our current political and cultural climate, it can seem like what we're dealing with and this election or this, your political affiliation is the most important thing. But it isn't. Think of the issues that you're dealing with or that in your life like a hospital would do when they triage patients when they come into the emergency room. The most important things get the most attention. And if it's not serious and it can wait, then it waits and it gets less attention. So you deal with things in relationship to the importance of other things. So we would go down the list. And I did this this week just so I could think about this. Number one is my relationship with God. It's first importance. We just talked about that over everything else. Family, job, everything. Relationship with God, number one. Number two is family. Take care of my spouse. Take care of my children. If you're in the room, take care of your grandchildren or whoever that may be. I think most of us would probably have family close to this. Number three, you might disagree with me on this, but I actually put my church family here. That the people that I am members of a church with, I am responsible to help them, to care for them, to check in on them. Not just because I'm a pastor, because I'm walking the walk of faith with them and we have covenanted together to help each other out. This is weird for me to say because technically I work for all of you, but my job didn't come up yet. Um, <laughs> but number four, I have job, right? Working hard, using your skills to help others and to be on mission wherever God has sent you. Number five, I have friends. And I kind of stopped there, but we got a pretty good top five that should take up most of your time and energy. And if we think about it, politics isn't anywhere near the top of this list. Not anywhere close. But sometimes we forget that and we get caught up in something or we see something that gets under our skin and it becomes the most important. So are you putting more effort and time towards the things that are of first importance? And we've kind of mentioned this all the way through. Our true allegiance is to Christ and our citizenship is in heaven because of the gospel. Philippians 3.20 is very clear on this. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our life here is temporary. We're only here to wait to be with Jesus. Now, we do live out our faith in such a way that we're not just sitting around waiting, but we're living it out intentionally. But we need to remember that so that it keeps what's happening in the world and all around us in perspective, that these things in the grand scheme of things in light of eternity are not important, at least not as much as we make them out to be sometimes. We just need to keep things in perspective. Jesus will win 
He has already won, and he will win in the end. This election is not the most important thing in the world. The pandemic is actually not either. What's important is that Jesus wins every time, all the time, for all eternity. I have more verses you can read if you're interested. Ephesians 2, 14 through 19, or through 20, and then Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. I'm not going to read them there. I'm going to keep moving through. So, at, to kind of bring all of this together, no matter who the president is, no matter who the governor is, no matter who the mayor is, if the United States crumbles and falls apart, God will still be on the throne. Jesus will still win, no matter what. And we've, in your lifetimes, you have seen some of these, I mean, in history, every great civilization crumbles, every single one. We've seen them even in, in my lifetime, the Soviet Union was one of those. It's not even the same as it used to be. And at some point, I think that will happen to us. I don't think it'll be in our lifetime, but at some point, I think the United States is not going to look like what it looks like. But even if it does, God will still be in control. He will still be on the throne. And so, do we believe that God is less in control if the person we voted for does not win the election? Do we think that God made a mistake? Or that he didn't know what was best for us or what was right or what was happening in that situation in that moment? So no matter what happens, we need to trust that he is on his throne. He will win. The next one is kind of working through this. And this one's going to be a little different than the rest of them. It's going to, it was a little interesting to me, but I think it's helpful. Is to treat the Bible like the Constitution. Yes, the Constitution of the United States. It gives us a framework, not the laws and the rules. So this is how the Constitution starts. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And so the Constitution itself, it sets the framework and the purpose for the government. It doesn't outline specific laws. It doesn't tell us things like speed limits. It doesn't give us education policy or anything like that in the Constitution, but it is the guideline for how everything else gets done. Everything that else that you do or any other law that you make has to fall under the judgment or in line with the Constitution. And the Bible is the same way. If you are a member of our church or if you're a member of another Baptist church, most likely this is what it says at the beginning of your doctrinal statement, and it says this, The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. And here's where it gets important for what we're talking about. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union, 
and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. See, it gives us the framework in the Bible to understand the principles by which we will be judged. Everything that we do, everything that we say, will be compared to Scripture and has to line up with what it says. It is the standard by which everything we do will be tried or judged. Think of it like the skeleton, right? If you lose your skeleton, you're just like a pile of stuff on the floor, and none of it works, right? But if you hang all of your flesh and organs and all of those things onto the skeleton, then everything works the way it's supposed to. And so the Constitution and the Bible are like our skeleton. It's what everything else hangs on. And everything only works because of those things. Because if you think about Scripture, yes, it gives us general principles like all life is valuable. Love your neighbor. Be generous. But it doesn't actually give us specifics on how to enact those things or to live those out in our current situation. It doesn't answer, right, homeschool or private school. The Bible doesn't tell us the answer to that. Trade policy, which job to take, things like that. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us what we should do on those issues. And so we use the Bible as the guideline and the measure for all we say and all we do in all realms of life. Right? It's our guideline, and it doesn't always give us specifics, which is where we turn to next. So what do we do then? Next, we are firm and free on issues. On issues that are clear from Scripture, we should be firm, and we should fight for them. On issues that are not as clear from Scripture, we should show grace as Christian freedom issues. And there's a couple of ways to look at this. One is to talk about them like whole church issues. There are things that the whole church should believe and hold and follow. Then there are Christian freedom issues where we have the freedom to disagree. For a theological example, think about the return of Christ. Whole church, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is going to physically return. Christian freedom is that post-millennial, all-millennial, pre-millennial, all of those other things, there's freedom for us to disagree in that. Right? You have the big concept that everybody agrees on, and then there's this, how that actually happens that we can disagree. The other way is to talk about this, and kind of giving you two different ways to think about it, is straight line, meaning there's a biblical principle and there's a straight line to the issue that I'm talking about, or jagged line issues. There's a biblical principle, and i got to take a couple of different steps to get to where I really am saying we, what we should do. And so think of it like this. If something is a whole issue whole church issue, it would be something we would require for people to be members of our church. If they disagreed with that, they would not be able to become members. On the backside of that, if someone was a member and participated in that thing or changed their minds on those issues, that would be a potential case for church discipline. Now, I know we don't do a lot of that around here right now, but that means removing them from being members. So these things would only be things that are super clear and all of us agree are essential for all Christians. For example, I think that we would say that based on Scripture, 
Christians should be against abortion because we all value life and we believe that life begins at conception. So taking a life, whether it's in the womb or at any point after that, we see as murder. So we should all be against that. If you weren't aware, that's actually in our doctrinal statement. So if you're a member, then you hold to that. It says, we should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. So that's a whole church or straight line issue. Now, I'm going to start this example this week, and we're going to go into more detail next week. So if it feels like I'm leaving you hanging, it's, I, I understand that. But although that we agree that we should oppose abortion, what that actually looks like is not as clear. Should we protest? Should we picket? How do we vote in response to that? How do we think about government in response to that? Those things are not as clear. So two Christians may agree on the biblical principle, but disagree on which policies, methods, or tactics, or timing best uphold that principle. Basically, you're agreeing on the best way to get there. Because it takes wisdom and discernment to live out or oppose or support issues that are clear. I actually think there's only a very small handful of things that are whole church or straight line issues. Most issues that we talk about are Christian liberty or jagged line issues, but it gets complicated because most of us have lifetimes of experience and tradition and patterns that are all wrapped up in how we see politics. So it's hard sometimes to separate the things that we know or think about politics from what the Bible actually says. So, are we willing to admit that the answers rely on wisdom-based political judgments, not explicit biblical principles, meaning there are some things that are not as clear as we would want them to be? And so it takes wisdom and discernment to figure that out. What I am saying is this, when the Bible is clear on something, let's be explicit and let's be clear. But when the Bible isn't as clear, let's leave room for Christian freedom and people to disagree. I think we should be very, very careful to say this is the Christian position or a Christian must vote this way. But what does this look like in real life, right? Because we disagree on some of these things. And so this is Paul. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14. It says this is Paul actually talking about meat, eating meat that is clean or unclean and the division that was happening in the church between Jews and Gentiles. One side thought some meat was unclean because of their culture and tradition and others did not. And so this is how he told them to work it out together. So if you want to translate this as we listen, I'll do some of that for you to disagreement on political issues instead of a different eating meat or not eating meat, you can do that. But here we go, verse 13. It says, Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. That's step one for us in this situation where you disagree with somebody on an issue. Don't judge them. Number one, maybe they don't understand the fullness of the issue like you do. Or maybe they were taught differently. Or maybe they're not ready to be confronted or to change their mind on an issue. 
So we just need to wait and be patient, which is what we'll get to in a minute. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Don't put something in the way or in the path of another believer who is trying to follow Christ. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. Paul is convinced, 100%, that all meat is unclean, is, is clean to eat. He can eat anything he wants. He even argues in other places that this is true. But the other brother that he's talking about doesn't see things that way. He thinks it's unclean. And so verse 15, for your brother or sister is, if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ has died. So if your brother or sister is hurt by your view on a political issue, you are no longer walking in love, even if you are convinced they are wrong. If it's not out of love, if you're only hurting them and judging them, it's not what God calls us to do, even if they are wrong. Because Paul, what he just said is, I'm convinced that I'm right. I'm persuaded that I'm right, and the other person is wrong. But it only hurts them. Then verse 18, whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food or because of politics. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It's a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God." Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever doubts, stand condemned if he eats, because he is eating not from faith, and everything that is from faith is sin. Basically, if you think you're right, and you're convinced from Scripture on a Christian freedom or a jagged line issue, that's great. But if someone disagrees you are to let it go in front of them or even not bring it up because the person who is more mature in their faith and their understanding of the scriptures does not hinder or unnecessarily burden a less mature believer. Now, here's why I think this is challenging for us. Because in political conversations, both sides are convinced that the other person is the weaker brother, that they don't have a better, a good enough understanding, and that they need to learn. And so when we both think we're more mature in our understanding of an issue, that's where we get the conflict. But I think we need to consider, yes, we may have the right opinion, we may have the right interpretation, but we also may not. And for the good of unity, and that doesn't mean that we never have these conversations, but the way you have them is very different if you're doing it this way. Then it's, I'm right and you're wrong and you need to change your mind now. Right? That's a very different conversation. And one of the ways we teach and correct or have conversations is through discipleship. We go through the scriptures together and we learn and we discuss 
And here's my, here's my caution to you. If you're saying another believer is wrong in their view, you better have Scripture and actual verses to back it up. You better know where they are and have them written down. Not principles, actual verses that explicitly say what you are saying. Okay? Because I think the only way to actually have these conversations with other believers is to be built on Scripture and to say, this is what the Bible says. And this is where my opinion is formed because of this verse or this verse or this verse. Not because that's what I was taught growing up or that's what somebody told me or that's what I heard on the news or whatever it is. But this is what the Bible says. I think that's the only way that we make it through these conversations. And we'll talk a lot more about this one next week. That's going to be a big chunk. But here's what I want to finish this morning. Is to kind of bring it all back together. Is to remember that God is our righteous ruler. There's only one leader one ruler who is worthy of our full admiration and praise, and that is God. He's the only one ever. I don't care how great a president was or a ruler was or a leader was, they're not worthy of our full admiration and praise. God is our righteous ruler. We see this clearly in the Old Testament when he tells the Israelites, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he tells them there will be a righteous king from the line of David who will rule forever. And that king is Jesus who came and defeated our enemy of sin and death. And trusting in him unites us as a new people, all who are united to God. It creates new loyalties and a new sense of identity. We are no longer Americans, Republicans, Democrats, but brothers and sisters in Christ under the rule and authority of God Almighty. And not only is he our righteous ruler, but he also realigns our desires with his desires. We see these in Jeremiah and actually Ezekiel also, where he talks about, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. What the king desires and how he desires his subjects to live won't be a constitution or a list of rules or laws, but it will be within them. They will want what God wants. They will live in line with the desires and commands of the true righteous ruler because their hearts have been changed. They have been recreated to align with the king. And once we're in the kingdom of God, there's no rivalries. There's no competitions for affection or attention. No jockeying for power to get what we want or to make things the way we want. Because we all possess equal opportunity and political access to God's throne room. When we're all believers in Christ, we can all go directly to Him. Straight line. There's no political insiders and outsiders. We're all insiders. We have access to the throne room whenever we want. We have communion with the King. And this new political community is built on the foundation of grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Not how we vote or how we interpret different parts of Scripture or how politically active we are, but grace given to us by God 
to people all over the world who hold many different views on a lot of different things, but what is certain is that God has brought them into his kingdom by his grace and mercy. All we do is believe and we give our lives to him. That's the most important part of life, being in the kingdom of God. Everything else is meaningless, like dust blowing away in the wind, compared to a relationship with the true and righteous king over all things. What matters is being a child of the king, nothing else. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you this morning and we thank you. We thank you that you are our king, that you are ruling, that you are in control. God, we pray that you would help us to see things the way that you see them, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us discernment, that you would give us grace, that you would give us understanding as we deal with the issues that are all around us, that it seems like are, are swirling and, and getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and people are getting more and more angry more upset, but that you would help us to remember to be grounded in Scripture. That yes, it may not be as clear or as explicit on some areas as we might think or we might want it to be, but you have given us all that we need in your revelation to us in the Word to be citizens of the kingdom, but also citizens of the United States or even citizens of whatever country that we're living in or wherever we are that it cuts across cultures, it cuts across political affiliations or nationalities or whatever we're looking at, that the Bible is true for all people in all times. So I pray that we would look to it, that we would just be focused and grounded on it, that we would let our opinions and traditions and things that we've been told our whole lives just kind of melt away and just focus on your word and how we make decisions and have conversations, even in the arena of politics. God, help us to seek you, to live the way that you desire for us to live. Because a relationship with you is more significant than anything else. And like you said, everything else should look like hate compared to how we love and serve and follow you. So help us to, help us to seek you above all things.